Hello and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series podcast brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In this episode, Dr. Raj Pruthi from the University of California, San Francisco, talks about non-muscle invasive bladder cancer. We want to welcome you to our first inaugural lecture of our Urology COVID lecture series. Um, thanks everyone for participating and making this such a success. We're really excited to collaborate um, between lots of institutions and hopefully get some world-class um, urologists to give lectures on a variety of topics. Um, I'm going to give you a few pointers as um, attendees just so you know how things are going to run. Because we have so much interest, we've converted the Zoom to a webinar series. So you got everyone who's listening in, your videos um, are off and you're muted and that's just to preserve bandwidth so that we ha have the best possible streaming experience for everyone. If you have questions for the lecture, you'll see that there's a Q&A box and if you can put your questions in there, that would be great. Um, if you wanna use the chat function to talk to each other or ask, um, technical questions for um, you know us in terms of running the Zoom, you can feel free to use that and, and we do hope that this is a um, place where you can connect with other people who are you know similarly going through uh, the urology COVID experience. Um, afterwards we've um, asked all the lectures to remind people to complete an evaluation at the end. So if you look on our website, there's an evaluation if you're an attendee to complete. A, it's a really short evaluation, but it's going to be very useful because it'll give feedback to our lecturers so they can use it in their promotion packets. And it'll also give us feedback on um, the lecture series itself. So after each hour-long lecture, please go to the website and fill out an evaluation. It'll ask you which lecture you're evaluating so that you can choose each one. Um, and we are going to, you know, try to make this as interactive as possible. And so to that end, we've asked our lecturers to, to keep their lecture to about 45 minutes and then try to field questions at the end so that we get some chance for interaction and participation from the audience. So with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Dr. Pruthi and uh, thanks for launching us off. All right, thank you, Dr. Hampson. This is a, what a wonderful uh, uh, idea that, that you've had and the other program directors. Uh, this is, um, you know, there's a saying that goes, don't let any uh, uh, crisis go to waste. I think this may be an example of a silver lining for us as a community to really to share our educational experiences. So, uh, Without any delay, here, let me switch over to um, my screen. If everyone can see that. Let me go back, sorry. There we go. All right, is that <clears throat> should be up and running there. I'll, I'll talk uh, for the next bit of time on non-muscle invasive bladder cancer and try to use the guidelines as, as the, the basis for uh, 
some of my our discussions and uh, my approach to to non-invasive bladder cancer. I don't have any disclosures, um, so we'll start off with some uh, kind of good old-fashioned virtual pimping. Uh, just a few questions, and we're going to come back to these at the end of the lecture as well. So the first is a 66-year-old male undergoes a TRBT for a solitary two-centimeter low-grade TA tumor. His upper tract imaging is negative. The next step is, and you can see the variety, surveillance, cystocytology every three months, then every six months, surveillance cysto only at three months for two years and six months, the surveillance cysto only at three and 12 months, then yearly, induction BCG, re-TRBT. A 58-year-old woman has a recurrent high-grade TA tumor three months after completing BCG for a TA high-grade tumor. What's the next step? Mitomycin, valrubicin, repeat BCG, TRBT, cystectomy. 52-year-old male undergoes TRBT for one micropapillary tumor at the dome. CT urogram is negative. The next step is re-TUR, induction BCG, induction mitomycin, partial cystectomy, radical cystectomy. So our goals are to understand the AUA-SUO guidelines-based approach for non-muscle invasive tumor. And as I mentioned, review my own thoughts and approach. So bladder cancer is uh, uh, the fourth most common cancer in men, ninth most common cause of cancer death in men. It's 12th in women and 15th most common cause of death in females. Uh, there is a racial predilection uh, more common uh, in males uh, of Caucasians over blacks and Hispanics and females, uh, the racial, there is no racial difference between Caucasians and um, blacks. Um, one can see here the uh, age distribution with the median age of diagnosis at 73. Um, we're gonna be focusing on what used to be called superficial bladder cancer we now like to refer it, it's more semantically accurate to be non-muscle invasive. Uh, so this is TA into the mucosa, uh, T1 into the lamina propria, or uh, carcinoma in situ. I wanted to spend a moment addressing some of the issues around grading. Uh, we, you'll, you'll still, you'll notice that we refer to this now as urothelial carcinoma, not transitional cell carcinoma. It's mo often graded uh, on the 1972 World Health Organization grading system of grade one, two, and three. But this has been modified uh, most recently in 2004 to be basically papilloma or pun lump, low grade and high grade tumors, getting rid of grade two. Although you still do see the outdated grade one, two, and three. The problem with that is that we know what grade one is, uh, we know what grade three is, it's high grade, but grade two is a bit of a garbage pail diagnosis. Studies have shown that 70% of pathologists will end up grading uh, tumors as grade two. Again, which is something we, we're not sure what that means. And when that's reevaluated in studies uh, by the 2004 definition, half of those end up being low grade or high grade. So again, it's not useful as urologists, so it's important for our pathologists to give us low grade or high grade. 
Um, most tumors are low-grade are low-grade tumors. Uh, uh, many recur. Some will progress. This is most often high-grade tumors, CIS, and T1 tumors. So outcomes of invasive bladder cancer are important from the standpoint of two outcomes, uh, recurrence and progression. Progression being the more ominous outcomes as it can, it can impact morbidity and mortality. The, I had the opportunity to serve on the 2007 guidelines and again, more recently on the 2016, with, which had more members, including uh, a patient advocate, Diane Qualley, who is the founder of Beacon. It's, it's a very interesting experience. In 2007, the AUA policy with guidelines was got, statements could only be made when high levels of evidence existed. As you know, we often don't have high levels of evidence for much of what we do, if not most of what we do. So we were very, very limited in what we could say. The recent guidelines kind of adapted what has often been done in the EAU or NCCN, which is some level of allowing for um, expert opinion or clinical principle. And this allowed us to really provide some more broader uh, uh, recommendations. Uh, the, you can see here much of the work or kind of the heavy lifting was done by ARC uh, and with supplementation by the authors and methodologists that were involved. 3,700 articles uh, really honed down to 643 articles. And most of these were since the past guidelines. Um, the panel started in 2014 and the recommendations in 2016. So it's, it's about a two to three year process reviewed. Uh, you can see here, no remuneration for, for the work that was done. Um, so let, let's start off with some of the guidelines here. So you can see the first guideline suggests you should perform a thorough cystoscopy of the tumor and, and, and report what you see. <clears throat> you should try to perform a complete TURBT when feasible. So you can see here, there's no trials or showing a benefit to doing that you should do a TRBT, but I think we could all agree it's a clinical principle uh, or a standard of care. Um, and you should initially perform a, some level of upper tract imaging. Um, you know, the TRBT I think is a very, very important aspect for the management of bladder cancer. Uh, this, this is a, uh, uh, if I were advertising or promoting the, this a bit minimally invasive technique, this is a slide from Dr. Ch Sam Chang at Vanderbilt. Terms we might use would be in our kind of uh, new terminology, it would be a focal therapy or a targeted therapy or single port or natural orifice, no scalpel. Uh, but it still is kind of an age old and important technique in the management of bladder cancer. The development of high definition endoscopic equipment provides a group Five-fold increase in resolution compared with standard equipment. In particular, a modern three-chip camera provides more contrast and light intensity. Image filtering, zoom function, 16 by nine formats increase uh, the picture information uh, that we receive and better identification of our anatomic structures, potentially leading to better surgical outcome. However, the data proving that this actually does change outcomes uh, remains to be seen. <clears throat> Another important uh, technology is monopolar or is, is bipolar. 
uh, I think what's important is to do what you're more comfortable with. It, it's important to note here, and you can see in the next slide, bipolar does not, in studies, have a, in random, and this randomized study does not have an advantage except with, with regard to less cautery artifact with bipolar. I personally prefer the monopolar. I, I like the feel of it and the ability to kind of focally control bleeding, but this is a personal preference and there's certainly not an impact on outcomes in this regard. We spend a lot of time uh, discussing expensive technology. There's always a desire uh, by young surgeons uh, to participate in complex cases, robotic cystectomies, robotic partials, uh, et cetera. Uh, I, would agree, I would argue that becoming very skilled at a TURBT is one of the most meaningful uh, uh, procedures with a significant impact on the disease. You could see here, uh, the study by Huang looked at younger versus uh, surgeons versus older, really more experienced versus less experienced, uh, and higher likelihood and less experienced to have residual tumor and lack muscle in the specimen. And this certainly has uh, impacts on the oncologic outcomes of the patients. So this is guideline statement number four. In a patient with a history of non-muscle invasive tumor in normal cysto, and a positive cytology, you should consider prostatic urethral biopsy and upper tract imaging, <clears throat> uh, or if available, enhanced cystoscopic techniques such as blue light cystoscopy or upper tract evaluation. Why evaluate the prostatic urethra? Well, it's important because it's often difficult to detect, difficult to treat, and can be uh, dangerous. Patients with invasive disease often have prostatic urethral involvement. Conversely, those with prostatic urethral involvement may have, it may be a predictor, important predictor of invasive disease. Biopsies of, of the prostatic urethra should be done in patients prior to cystectomy. You can use a resectoscope, uh, a full loop from the mid prostate uh, to the mid, uh, to, uh, to the viru at about five and seven o'clock. This is where the highest concentration of prostatic ducts are, where most of the CIS is likely to be found. The full thickness chip allows a pathologist to see the interface between the urethra mucosa product prostatic ducts and the stroma. Guideline number five, at the time of each occurrence or recurrence, so initially or any recurrence, you should assign the clinical stage and classify the patient according to low, intermediate, or high risk. So risk stratification, uh, there's been some very useful uh, risk calculators to predict recurrence and progression. The ERTC calculator um, and uh, the Queto calculator as well. Um, and these often can be on the phone. And, and, and again, for me, historically have been uh, rather useful. The limitation of the, those calculators is that they don't take into account the fact that we now do repeat TURBTs on patients, which alters the, the outcomes and course of disease. It doesn't include the fact that some patients get maintenance therapy, uh, mitomycin, et cetera. Also, the 19, it tends to use the 1972 uh, WHO guidelines, which we've already um, uh, condemned a little bit earlier. 
you and it's 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 okay but it's not great it has a c index which is a concordance index you know somewhere about 0 0.6 0 0.64 and higher grade it's a little bit better 0.5 is a coin flip so as a group we thought uh, it was important to and sought to develop risk groups to predict outcomes and inform treatment risk groups that were similar to one another and that is what you see here uh, low risk a solitary low-grade tumor or pun lump, high risk, uh, uh, any recurrent high-grade TA, larger uh, TAs, T1, CIS, BCG failure. So it doesn't start to include now prior treatment, uh, variant histology, prostatic urethral involvement. Intermediate risk, though, you can see here is a little bit of a mixed group. Uh, and we did have much debate on, on the creation of this intermediate group. You can see a, a number of low-grade uh, uh, cases here uh, with a higher, light, uh, larger tumors, multifocal, which would have a liar, higher likelihood of, of recurrence, as well as a high-grade TA, which might have a higher likelihood of progression. Um, but all of these intermediates have similar treatments and surveillance strategy. Uh, uh, the the, the low-grade T1 is a little bit of a zebra uh, and, and relatively rare. Just a few words about variant histologies, micropapillary, nested, plasmacytoid, and also glandular or pure squamous. So to be distinguished from a urothelial carcinoma with squamous differential differentiation or urothelial carcinoma with glandular differentiation, those are urothelial carcinoma. These are pure squamous or pure glandular. Uh, also included in this group are those with lymphovascular invasion. Variants tend to present with muscle invasive disease and it's cystectomy two thirds are up, upstaged to P3, P3 or four. It's important for pathologists to report these and the guidelines recommend having an experienced GU pathologist review or re-review. Due to the high degree of upstaging, radical cystectomy is recommended. If you're gonna even consider a bladder sparing approach in these, a repeat TRBT should be done at four to six weeks. A few comments about urine markers. This is a brief list of potential markers on the market. All have limitations in sensitivity or in specificity or both. Some with significant costs, for example, fish. See the high specificity of cytology compared to the others, but low uh, level of sensitivity. The bottom line, no study has shown the effectiveness of biomarkers to decrease mortality or improve outcomes. And consequently, according to the panel, the, the panel concluded that given uh, in surveillance, biomarkers should not replace cystoscopy. Given the limitation of cytology or other markers in low-grade cancer, it should not be used uh, just cystoscopy alone. The only window was for the potential of fish to adjudicate equivocal cytology or for some to potentially assess or predict response to BCG. This study shows how uh, fish can help with atypical cytology. If your cysto is positive, then fish obviously is not useful because you know you have a recurrent tumor. But a negative fish can help with an equivocal cysto, maybe a, a, a little bit of a red area, or can help confirm a negative cysto. Some studies have looked at that again, potential of Eurovision positivity to predict recurrent tumors. Here's a number of studies varying follow-up anywhere from 16 to 36 months. 
the uh, Menguel study showed no relation between post-BCG fish and the risk of progression, but the KIPP study did so show that. So because of this one study showing that, uh, the panel left the door open to possibly use fish in this environment. I personally don't use fish as a predictor of BCG response and don't recommend it. Um, I, I think for most patients, it's probably not uh, adds value. So the repeat TURBT, residual disease is seen in 20 to 40% of patients. Even in patients who have a solitary papillary, ones you feel pretty confident you got it all, 20% will have residual disease. The re-TUR was perhaps the most significant recommendation made in the 2007 guidelines. And you can see guideline 14 and guideline seven, 12 here is pretty obvious. You should resect all, uh, all tumor. But the new guideline is 13, that you should re-resect high-grade TA tumors, not just T1 tumors. In addition to the possibility of residual disease, and that it's, we know that BCG works optimally when all gross tumor is gone, there's a greater risk of progression with residual disease. There, there is the concern of upstaging. If no muscular propria is in the specimen, you have a greater than 50% chance of actually having muscle invasive disease. But importantly, even if you have muscle present and, and it's negative, you still have a 30% chance of having T2 disease. That's the importance of the restaging uh, of T, T1 disease. Kaplan-Meier curves showing survival in patients based on a single versus restaging TURBT shows improved recurrence-free survival and progression-free survival in those patients who have a uh, repeat TUR. So uh, definitely a therapeutic improvement. Re-TUR uh, also has important prognostic value. And I think this is important for me when I'm in discussions with my patients. A restaging TURBT identifies patients with T1 bladder cancer who are at a high risk for early tumor progression, perhaps justifying immediate cystectomy. All patients with T1 on initial TUR, on, T, uh, on repeat TUR, can have a variety of outcomes. One is T2 disease, muscle invasion, which you're, as I mentioned, you're gonna see in at least 30% of the cases, and those patients need to move on to neoadjuvant chemotherapy and cystectomy. But others include T1 uh, disease, 26% of the patients, or TACIS in 32% of the patients, or 42% with uh, who, all of these are, who have some tumor, 42% uh, with no tumor seen. Uh, you can see here that those with T0 or even TCIS or TA disease have a good probability of progression-free survival and are good candidates for BCG. Those with T1 have a more guarded prognosis with BCG treatment uh, with 82% of those uh, having progression. This doesn't mean you don't do BCG for these patients, but I counsel them as to the potential outcomes. There, there, this was also a recommendation that first appeared in 2007, the use of perioperative chemotherapy to reduce recurrences. The forest plot here shows it's not a home run, but there's about a 14% absolute risk reduction beneficial for low and intermediate risks tumors, uh, like high risk. But two important thoughts. First, I would recommend it. Make sure you counsel and consent your patients that you're doing this. I've heard of situations where the patients didn't even know they were getting this. They consented to TURBT, 
and had some uh, side effects and were upset after knowing that they, they were get, that chemotherapy had been delivered to their bladder. It is chemotherapy, so we should consent them for that. Second, um, some patients can have prolonged significant side effects like calcified eschar formation. So if you do an extensive resection or there's any concern at all for potential perforation, it's not worth it. Uh, don't do it. One thing to add is I've started to switch based on a recent SWOG trial. This is a phase two trial of using gemcitabine for single dose perioperative use. It's comparing two phase two trials, but the results seem to be at least as good, perhaps with maybe less side effects. A few of the other recommendations here, I think fairly straightforward, low risk, no adjuvant uh, or perioperative intravesical therapy, or, or excuse me, there's perioperative, no adjuvant therapy, intermediate risk. You can consider, but it's not mandated, intravesical chemotherapy or BCG, a single induction course. You know, it, 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 you use some judgment, there's some flexibility. If you have a patient with two small low-grade TA tumors, for example, you could just consider them for surveillance. And, and uh, high-risk tumors should get an induction course of BCG. So this is a cartoon uh, from a decade or so ago showing the multiple proposed mechanisms of BCG. Whenever you use a cartoon like that with multiple mechanisms, it generally means that we really don't know what's going on. Uh, a more sophisticated cartoon, uh, better analyzing the cell-mediated immune responses to BCG. Uh, you can see the better understanding of checkpoints and the opportunities for us to in intervene on innate and uh, uh, on uh, adaptive therapy responses, a variety showing, shown here. At this point, we really don't know, can't make recommendation that there's one strain that may be better than others. There have been smaller studies that have potentially shown differences between strains. I think what's uh, at, at the time that we have of BCG shortages, I think any BCG you can get is, is useful and wouldn't worry about identifying the difference in strains. Um, this is something I wanna talk a little bit about is the strength of BCG. And there's some interesting data in the last you know, five years or so addressing this. So this is a study from Spain, uh, the Queto study group, which looked at patients with high-grade tumors uh, resected all the visible tumor and were randomized to 81 milligrams of BCG versus 27, a third dose. And you can see uh, the time to recurrence here, essentially no difference statistically between the full dose and one third dose group. Same, similar findings with regard to time to progression and the Kaplan-Meier plots, no demonstrated advantage for the standard dose. This is the ERTC3962 trial, which compared low dose versus full dose and uh, one year of maintenance versus three years of maintenance. And you can see the four different groups here. For those who haven't seen this, I would encourage you to take a look at it. It's, it's, a, it's an important study, which again, addresses the, this issue. And uh, show you the bottom line here is, the, you can see here time to progression between this. They looked for a kind of non-inferiority and they, they didn't see a difference uh, in time to progression or in um, survival rates between 
any of these groups, third dose, one year maintenance, full dose, one year, third dose, three years, full dose, three years. So definitely give some food for, uh, for thought as far as kind of better understanding. Uh, and as they put it, the benefit of two additional years of maintenance should be weighed against its added cost and inconvenience. Remembering that in the original maintenance trial by Dr. Lamb, only 16% of the patients actually made it out to three years um, due to side effect profile. So because of this, with and with BCG shortages, we've, we've sometimes dropped the maintenance regimens uh, for, for intermediate patients completely. The guidelines suggest a one-year maintenance regimen. Uh, and again, in, in trying to conserve BCG, sometimes we've dropped this, especially for the low-grade tumors, uh, and, or sometimes one year, but only at a third of a dose. Um, and for high, for, uh, High-risk tumors, uh, we, we recommend the full three years. Um, really what I'll, I'll try to do for these patients because of the high risk of dropout is have a low threshold to dose reduce them to a third, a fifth, even a tenth of a dose. Remember, this is an immunotherapy where you really, the goal is to just kind of stimulate the immune system, which may uh, increase over time. And my goal for these patients is just to try to get them through at least a year uh, which is shown to be uh, valuable in that ERTC studying, study with, with dose modification. Much is told at the six-month uh, end uh, time point, uh, the T1 tumor who fails even one induction course uh, is considered, uh, or with persistent T1 disease, is considered unresponsive. The CIS or TA who failed two induction courses needs to be considered unresponsive. If you have persistent cytology, then uh, you need to evaluate these patients uh, further as we talked about earlier. And you can look here and kind of read through the, the recommendations for patients with, uh, who've relapsed. Uh, if you're intermediate or high risk with persistent disease, uh, if, you, if you have positive cytology, you should uh, consider, again, a prostatic urethral biopsy upper tract evaluation. If you're intermediate or high risk with persistent TA or CIS, after just a single course of induction, you should give a second induction. So this is, again, TA or CIS, persistent disease after one course, you should give a second course. Some other regarding BCG relapse. If you're T1, you give BCG, and you, you have recurrent or persistent T1, so that's T1, one course of BCG, and it's still there. You should go on to cystectomy. Or if you're TA and you progress to T1, you should uh, go right to cystectomy and not a second course. You should not give additional BCG um, if, if the patient has recurred with two induction courses within six months of two induction courses or induction plus maintenance. Um, if somebody is unwilling or unfit for cystectomy after two courses of BCG, uh, the guidelines recommended clinical trial enrollment or intravescal chemotherapy if, if trials aren't available. And I'm gonna talk a little bit about some other options that may be uh, available. So the, the bottom line is the recommendation is for cystectomy. You can consider clinical trial. Here's a list of a few other intravescal agents, docetaxel, gemcitabine, docetaxel, doublet, Valrubicin has been approved uh, for this group of patients. 
or checkpoint inhibitors. And I'll talk, talk a little bit about that. I wanna show you some of these curves of, this is a trial of docetaxel uh, in the BCG refractory. And it's, very, it's not uncommon that everybody looks good at the six month or six, one year with these intravesical agents, but you see how the curve really drops off significantly down to 25% at year three. This is gemcitabine and docetaxel. Gemcitabine is a nucleotide analog and should be given first as it needs DNA synthesis and could be compromised by taxotere, which inhibits mitosis. So this is gemcitabine first, then docetaxel. You can see it's a very long regimen. Uh, uh, again, looks good 42% at one year, but at two years down to 24% um, uh, with the curves, but uh, reasonable recurrence-free survival for patients. And I wanna just touch a little bit uh, on uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, T cells, as we know, can identify cancer cells by the antigens on their surface. Normal cells can help block T cells by expressing P uh, PDL1, that's uh, programs uh, death uh, ligand one to bind to PD um, on the T cell, which acts as an on and off switch. So it stops the T cell response, letting, uh, essentially telling them to leave them alone. Some cancer cells have large amounts of PDL1. Um, which helps them hide from the immune attack. Monoclonal antibodies have been developed to target either the PDL1 or the PD1 and block this binding and boost, boost the immune response to, uh, uh, against cancer cells. Due to the failure of several uh, chemotherapy agents in the BCG refractory space, has led some people to look to immunotherapy as perhaps the better treatment uh, given the success of BCG. Um, currently, there's a number of trials. Uh, the most recent has been the Keynote 057 trial, uh, assessing the role of PD-1 inhibitors in BCG refractory setting. Um, the uh, 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 Keynote one, I'll, I'll show you this actually in January of this year, uh, received FDA approval. Uh, it has been noted in metastatic disease, interestingly, that PDL1 expression in bladder cell tumors are not associated with Im improved response rates, which is somewhat not intuitive, right? Uh, we would think if you if if you express high levels of PDL1, you would have a uh, it would be a good surrogate to say that you're going to respond to an inhibitor of that, but that doesn't seem to uh, to be the case. Um, so these are a variety of immune, che immune checkpoint inhibitors and more in advanced bladder cancer where they've shown success. So the rationale is to move them earlier. And Pembro is the one that is used in, uh, in the keynote trial. And I'll just mention the trial as it was, again, FDA approved in January. It, it was a multi-center single arm trial. So it's not a randomized trial of patients with uh, non-muscle-based bladder cancer, 96, which were BCG refractory. Uh, they received Pembro 200 milligrams every three weeks in its infusion until toxicity or persistent or recurrent disease, up to 24 months. The median uh, duration of response was 16 months. Uh, the major efficacy outcomes was complete response and duration. The complete response rate uh, 
uh, was, again, the duration was 16 mo months. 46% of people experienced a complete response lasting greater than 12 months. At 15 months, only 31%, uh, and only 19% greater than 18 months. So again, you do see that characteristic, you know, sudden drop off with it. Um, the most common adverse reactions were fatigue, diarrhea, rash, pruritus. 5% uh, had serious adverse events. 3% had pneumonitis, which can be fatal. And again, the dose is 200 milligrams. And just to let you know, a 2 milligram dose every three weeks, a 200 milligram dose is $9,000. Um, better uh, complete response rates uh, or, or non-white seen in non-white patients, non-US patients, CIS only. And interestingly, in PDL1 negative patients, again, uh, doesn't really make intuitive sense. So, in summary, I think there is some rationale for use of these checkpoint inhibitors in BCG refractory disease. This isn't a home run, but it did achieve FDA approval, and it was maybe an interesting start to uh, the use of, of uh, immune checkpoint inhibitors. Um, so, you, you know, I mentioned the, the immune mediated pneumonitis, which can be severe. Uh, I don't want to forget the role of uh, uh, chemotherapy, I mean, excuse me, of cystectomy. Uh, it's undoubtedly an invasive intervention with a high degree of complications and morbidity, but in the setting of limited options for potentially lethal disease, it does remain an, an important option. This is sort of a, a graph here showing uh, that those patients who underwent an early radical cystectomy not waiting until they're, they're delayed until muscle invasive disease uh, had improved uh, outcomes with regard to survival. Again, more, more data to, the, to this, uh, a study by Ganesh Raj showing that uh, sometimes we feel as practitioners and even patients that we have some time in these patients because they're not yet muscle invasive, but waiting can adversely impact their outcomes. You can see these patients who undergo a preemptive cystectomy have improved results versus waiting till they're muscle invasive. With this rationale, the pa panel man, uh, recommended no cystectomy uh, not performed for uh, low or intermediate risk. For high risk or fit for surgery with persistent T1 disease, remember, or with variant histologies to undergo. Those with disease after two cycles of BCG within the first year uh, should uh, be offered a cystectomy. I want to kind of finish up a little bit here in the next 10 minutes or so on follow-up because this was an important rec part of the recommendations of uh, uh, the current guidelines. The three-month CISTO is perhaps the most predictive tool that we have and is recommended for all patients. It says three to four months. I'll typically do it at three months. Low-risk patients, the CISTO at three months. Then what I'll do is typically at nine months, I'll show you this in a table later and then yearly and uh, until five years, and after that shared decision-making for a year. There's no need for upper tract imaging. Uh, there is a new recommendation for uh, observation or in-office fulguration. So some of these very small tumors, especially older patients who have demonstrated recurrent low-risk tumors, may benefit from surveillance or occasionally in-office fulguration or laser ablation to minimize the therapeutic burden and cost savings. It's better than taking the 83-year-old patient with comorbidities to the OR every three to four months to resect the tumor. Another study supporting the use of office laser ablation, especially in the elderly, again, 
I think active surveillance is a reasonable option as well. This is more follow-up, and again, I'm gonna to touch on this in just a moment uh, in a table. Uh, for intermediate risk patients, uh, you can see there's some range of follow-up uh, every three to six months for two years, then six to 12, and then uh, cytology should be part of it, uh, the follow-up of these patients, and occasional upper tract imaging, uh, whereas in low risk, it was no imaging. And here is kind of a grid of how I'll tend to approach these patients. So you can see low risk cysto at 3, 12, 24, 36, and yearly after. And then I break down the intermediate risk into the ones that are low grade. Remember, I talked about that maybe multifocal or larger low grade tumors. And I'll do a cystocytology. Remember, no, no cytology in, in the low risk, but intermediate low grade at 3, 6, and then every six months to, to uh, uh 48 months, and then once a year thereafter. The intermediate risk that's high, high grade, that high grade small TA tumor, I'll follow them a little bit more closely. Uh, you can see here uh, every uh, three months for the first couple of years, and then every six months, and then yearly. So I'll follow them very similar to how I'll follow a high risk tumor, uh, which is every three months with cytology and imaging uh, yearly. I just want to comment on something that, that the importance of sort of this new recommendation. So this is a study we did a few years ago where we looked at, at uh, Beacon, SUO, AUA, and 67%, two-thirds of all urologists do cystos every three months on all patients for at least the first two years. Uh, if anybody's going to do less, it tends to be for low grade, but it didn't vary by practice type. Uh, this is a table from the ERTC studies that shows you can see the risk, risk of progression and mor mortality is minimal for, it's not even listed for low grade uh, and really minimal for patients. Uh, so take even the low grade where there is a risk of recurrence, but it tends to be low with no morbidity. So what we did is thought about, well, what about these low grade patients, which is the majority of, of bladder tumors? Remember, bladder cancer has the highest lifetime treatment cost. We are seeing a real push towards value-based care, and we should be considering the cost and uh, while maintaining our efficacy. So we did a study where we looked at traditional uh, follow-up of patients versus these new AUA guidelines, and we looked specifically of patients with low-risk disease um, and uh, looked at, at the potential cost differences between these patients, and you can see here, uh, we looked at Medicare reimbursement costs and extrapolated over the entire population uh, and the total surveillance costs. And you can see here the five-year per patient total surveillance cost, if we went to the guidelines, saved about $10,000. And importantly, you can see here several hundred million dollars when we blow this up to the entire population um, of almost $340,000 million. So lastly, I wanna finish with just a couple of words about prevention, because I think we have a unique opportunity as urologists uh, of the role of uh, smoking cessation uh, in patients. Um, I think we do know that cessation does decrease bladder cancer risk, even within the first two to four years. Um, there have been studies that we, uh, only 75% of primary care physicians discuss smoking cessation. 
and 78% of urologists, uh, uh, urology patients said that they've ever been counseled. 43% uh, will stop smoking after the diagnosis, but you can see here, uh, most urologists believe that they won't quit anyway. Uh, predict, those who predict counseling is uh, uh, if the MD was a non-smoker, if they got formal training in uh, uh, how to uh, counsel patients, and if they treated bladder cancer more often. So I think we don't do this enough, and it's something that, that we certainly should do. Um, all right, I'm going to finish here and then go back to those cases and take questions. So remember the risk stratification. You could cut, print this out and uh, uh, look at low, intermediate, and high risk. It's important to re-stratify at the time of each recurrence. Recognize variant histologies and lymphovascular invasion. Consider cystectomy for those. Understand BCG unresponsive disease. Understand that immunotherapy is coming at a fast pace in GU-oncology. Understand time to learn the drugs and the toxicities. And this is an algorithm, and you can actually, the PDF of this, you can print this out separately on the AUA site. And you can see a low, low risk, low risk. You give them perioperative chemotherapy, gemcitabine, maybe mitomycin, and then follow these patients. If they recur, reassess them as potentially within one year as intermediate risk, and then you drop them down. The intermediate risk here, you see the role is... Uh, TURBT, and then induction chemo or induction BCG. I'll tend to use, especially for the low-grade tumors, induction chemotherapy, saving my BCG uh, for uh, down the road, and then one year of maintenance, and then surveillance, and then the high-risk group, uh, T1, lymphovascular invasion variants, right to cystectomy. Otherwise, TUR, BCG, three years of maintenance, if they recur at T1 and then cystectomy otherwise reinduce. So let's go back to our, our questions. So the first patient, so this is a, a patient with a, a low risk disease, right? So this patient should have uh, cysto only at three and 12 months, no cytology, and then yearly thereafter. So that's a low risk patient. So now this is a the woman with a high-grade uh, TA uh, who, so it's a high-risk disease because uh, uh, it's recurrent, and then she recurs again at TA. So this is a patient who should be considered for uh, repeat induction BCG therapy. Uh, remember, this is a, these patients, because uh, she's only three months after, she deserves a second course of induction BCG therapy. 50% of the patients who don't respond the first time will respond a second time. This is the patient with a variant, right? Micropapillary tumor at the dome. Uh, imaging is negative. So the, the role here is for radical cystectomy. So just as sort of a, uh, this time, I, I just want to uh, uh, thank you for all of you, for everything uh, everybody's been doing. Uh, the, uh, uh, just remember, advise everybody for healthy eating, regular sleep, physical activity, taking breaks, taking breaks from the media, developing routines, live in the moment, patience, good time to reconnect, and uh, remember mindfulness. To this end, the, med uh, the med meditation and sleep app Headspace is offering a free Headspace app to all healthcare providers through 2020. 
I think it's www.headspace.com and you can look at there for, for healthcare providers for COVID-19. I think you put in your, your NPI number. But uh, I'm happy now to, to take any questions uh, anybody may have. All right, thank you so much. Um, we've had a lot of questions come up, um, so I'm gonna try to compile them for you. First, um, there was a lot of discussion on when you, for a high-grade disease, when you do a repeat resection, how should you be doing that? Should you be re-resecting the scar? Is a cold cut biopsy okay? Um, what, what do you do when you go back and do that resection? Uh, thanks, Dr. Hampson. So I'll wait. I'll wait anywhere. I wouldn't do it any sooner than two weeks because they usually have had a pretty big initial resection, but maybe even at three and four weeks. I'll tend to use the, the loop to resect just the tumor base you don't, or any areas around it that you think are suspicious. I don't think you need to do random biopsies of that. Okay, great. Another question that a lot of people had was um, just wanting you to talk a little bit about why high-grade TA was included in the intermediate risk category. What was the rationale or data uh, to support that? So there, there was uh, that, we spent a lot of time focusing on that intermediate group and there was a lot of debate and uh, about that and what that should look like and whether that specific group, that's a wonderful question, whether that specific group should belong in there or should it be high risk. But if you look at kind of risk for the small TA tumors, the risks of progression of those tend to be less. And also we looked at two things as we looked at them from a recurrence progression standpoint and also from a therapeutic standpoint, that those patients tend to do okay with just a year of maintenance. So that was the rationale is that their progression risks tend to be lower than the larger TA high-grade tumors, if that, but again, hotly debated. Right. Um, one question that's pretty timely, um, what are you doing or what are your recommendations for repeat TUR for high-grade disease during COVID? Is this something that we should be pushing off, giving them BCG in the meantime? Uh, should, is it kind of considered urgent and should be scheduled within six weeks and still proceed forward? Wow, what a, what a, what a great timely question. Uh, and uh, I, I don't know if I know the answer to that exactly. I think I, I would probably, you know, probably use a little judgment. I think if, if I, and again, this isn't, this is, this isn't the COVID, I think if I, I thought I got it all on the first understanding that I may have left tumor behind, just given the risks, I think I might just proceed on with BCG in those patients. It's not what I would do otherwise, but if I think there was any concern that I visibly left tumor behind, then I, I, I would take those patients back. But I, I just made an argument of telling you why a lot of those patients have uh, residual tumor. So it's not perfect, but we're not living in per a perfect world right now. Another question, um, the guidelines say that enhanced cystoscopy should be offered at the time of TURBT. Some centers don't have the ability to do this. Um, so do you have any idea of how, you know, what proportion of centers are offering this? Um, and the question is, do you currently offer it? Uh, we do currently offer it. In fact, here at UCSF, we do uh, offer enhanced local cystoscopy too. And Dr. Porton here has been, has been the lead on that. You know, it's as far as at the time of TURBT, I think it's good. I don't think it's necessarily a home run. If you really look at the data, the, the, it doesn't, enhanced cystoscopy has not shown, been shown to dramatically increase survival rates in patients. 
or even cystectomy rates. So I don't think that I don't think that it, it is again a huge home run. It does decrease the number of TURs that a patient might go through. So I think you can make an economic argument that it probably is a good investment from a total cost of care standpoint. But I don't think it's if you don't have enhanced cystoscopy, the, the patients are at any undue risk. Um, let's see, somebody is asking about just reviewing the definition of BCG unresponsive again. Um, sounds like this is a, um, a point of question that a lot of people have. Yeah, so there's, there, that's, uh, it's a tricky definition. So you have to distinguish BCG, BCG failure, I think has a broader definition because that includes BCG unresponsive versus BCG, um, uh, you know, patients who are more resistant to BCG or BCG intolerant. BCG intolerant, because they all fall in a group where you can't give more BCG. If they're intolerant, that means they just can't, you know, it, it doesn't work. Versus, does it work? Does it, uh, does it work, but then initially, but then the tumor comes back? So if a patient's tumors so it's a it's a it's a, it's a very kind of co complicated question i guess but if your tumor if, if you have a non-t1 tumor and it's a ta tumor and you give bcg once and it's still ta like in the, the question then that is not yet bcg responsive uh, or unresponsive you do you do need a second cycle of bcg if you're a t1 tumor and you give bcg and you're persistent t1 that is deemed BCG unresponsive, if that makes sense. So in non-T1 disease, you have to fail two cycles of BCG or BCG in maintenance. In T1 disease, just one cycle. Now, if a patient responds to a T TA tumor with BCG and they don't recur for two years and then it comes back, that is not BCG unresponsive because if, if it has to be within a year, if you recur within the first year, then you're felt to be BCG unresponsive if you fail two cycles of BCG and TA disease. But if it's beyond two years, then you actually are believed to have responded to BCG and then you should give BCG another try. Great. Um, lots of questions here, so I'm gonna keep them coming for the next couple of minutes if that's okay. That sounds great. Um, one uh, question was, if you have a patient with recurrent low-grade disease and you do a cystoscopy, you find a recurrence and you're planning for in-office fulguration, do you give them intravesical gemcitabine at the time? I do not. I do not in those patients. I think that's a good thought, and I haven't seen a trial or study do that. Um, uh, a, a very interesting notion, and probably uh, maybe something to consider. People should consider in the future. Should we do a trial of that of in, in office? Uh, but we haven't done that. We've kind of the approaches have typically been just very minimal, and in, including fulguration, or even sometimes I'll just observe that patient and watch that tumor and see them back in three or six months. And if it grows slowly, leave it alone or fall graded if it seems like it's growing. But I think a, a very, very thoughtful, interesting question. And I think probably worthy of a study. Um, another question you mentioned that if there is a concern for perforation during TUR to avoid giving intravesical chemo. Um, somebody asked if that perforation is extraperitoneal, do you still have to avoid giving that intravesical installation? Absolutely. I would say if there's any worry, and even if it's extensive, don't give the intravesco, mitomycin especially. I've seen a number of patients over the years referred to me for cystectomy because they have such horrible symptoms after receiving mitomycin, and maybe there was a microperforation and they had issues, and it gives them such terrible symptoms. 
And I think this is one where when we look at the absolute benefit of mitomycin is 14%, it's not worth it, right? I mean, it's not worth the risk to that patient. So I would say no. I would say even if there's a, an extensive resection, I, I, would, I, I wouldn't give mitomycin in those cases. And certainly for high-grade patients, if I'm doing a deep resection for muscle invasive disease, I wouldn't give mitomycin. Number one, for the concerns I mentioned of side effects. Number two, it doesn't really have a significant benefit to the high-grade patients. Great. Another question is, is there any role for maintenance gemcitabine for intermediate or even high-risk disease? Um, I think a very good question. Not in the guidelines. There are people who do use maintenance re regimens of gemcitabine. I think particularly for intermediate risk patients uh, who had a good response to initial gemcitabine induction course, uh, th there is a consideration one could do for, for maintenance uh, chemotherapy as well. The 2000, 2007 guidelines actually made that recommendation. And the most recent ones don't talk about that, but I think that's certainly a, a, a possibility is for maintenance in that. And in that one year maintenance in the, in the intermediate risk does include the chemotherapeutic patients, so yes. Okay, another question, if you do a cystoscopy and it looks normal, but your cytology is positive and you're going back to the operating room to do bladder biopsies, do you routinely take prostatic urethral biopsies at that time? Yes, in fact, you should do it. If you have a positive cytology and don't have an explained, it's important to do that. I, some people do random bladder biopsies. Uh, I, I typically won't do random biopsies because they're just that, they're random. If I see a, a concerning area, I will. That's where I think, uh, blue light cystoscopy can be beneficial. But you, you, I think in that case, you have to evaluate the upper tracts, but you absolutely have to evaluate the prostatic urethra. Okay, great. And there's questions still coming in that I'm working on sorting through. Um, let's see, somebody asks, is there any data to show that three years of BCG maintenance is oncologically superior to one year? Well, I showed you, and again, I would encourage people to read that ERTC trial, which compare those. The curves, if you look at them, there, there were, it didn't achieve this statistical endpoint of a difference between the two. Um, I think we do three years based on the original SWOG trial by LAM, which showed uh, uh, an improved outcome versus no maintenance. But that ERTC trial suggested that three years, so in that case, three years is better than nothing, absolutely, in a randomized trial. But is it better than one year? Um, I, I, I think that the ERTC trial would suggest perhaps it's not. Okay. Another question. Um, if you have somebody who has a history of high-risk um, disease and they're on surveillance, and then you find that they have um, a lower risk recurrence, like a low-grade, a small low-grade TA uh, recurrence, do you continue them on the high-risk schedule or do you um, start the surveillance regimen over? Wow, that, that's a, that's a tough one. Uh, the I would I would follow that patient on the high risk schedule, although uh, um, it's not based on any data, um, just because I'm always concerned in those patients from their original biology of it being high grade. So you would start them then from the beginning of high grade surveillance. You'd start doing three Q three month. Um, cystos or would you continue them where they were on their high grade survey? Yeah, I would continue on where they were in their high grade uh, on their follow-up. Right. Um, okay, last question and uh, maybe afterwards we can um, post some of these questions and answers. 
Um, can you make a comment on tumors located in bladder diverticulae? Um, how do you stage them? How do you manage them? Yeah, um, yeah, th th that's that's a, that's a great question. Uh, I'm I'm worried about a T1 tumor in the diverticulum because I, remember they, they don't have muscle behind that diverticulum, and I think uh, I often will discuss cystectomy in those patients. Um, because again, they're in their last layer of, uh, of, of the bladder. Uh, some people will, will, will consider, and I've done this in some patients, a partial cystectomy or diverticulectomy. But again, it is a, it tends to be a field defect disease. I think you can make an argument that within the diverticulum, perhaps there's excess stasis, which is different from the rest of the urethelium. But I think I don't, I'm not, if it's a TA tumor, I'll consider intravesco therapy but I would be very cautious about the T1 tumor and diverticulum and think about more aggressive therapies. All right, great. Well, we're at 10 o'clock. I wanna be respectful of everybody's time and try to end on time. So Dr. Pruthi, thank you so much thank for you. your lecture and also feeling all of the great questions that we've had from our participants. I think we had over 450 participants at our peak, wow. um, which is great. So. Thanks everyone for participating. Please remember to go to the website and fill out an evaluation. That's really helpful. It'll help us um, make improvements to our program and also um, you know, track who's participating and how we're helping during this time. All right, bye everyone, stay safe. Thanks, bye. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.